Data visualization tools are required to translate the findings of data scientists into charts, graphs, and pictures. Understanding how to utilize these tools and display data is necessary for a data scientist to communicate with people in other domains. In this episode, Srini Katamadi hosts a discussion with Jake Vanderplas about the Python ecosystem for data science and the different attempts at creating a data visualization library. Jake Vanderplas is the Director of Research for Physical Sciences at the University of Washington's eScience Institute, where he also received his PhD in astronomy. In addition to contributing to many Python data science libraries like Scikit-Learn, SciPy, and NumPy, and Matplotlib, he's written multiple books that have been published by O'Reilly, and he's given many talks on data science tools and techniques. He's also the co-creator of the Altair Project, which is a declarative data visualization library for Python. I hope you like this episode. So to start our discussion, let's talk a little bit about Python and its role in the data science ecosystem. A few years ago, you published a blog post called Why Python is the Last Language You'll Have to Learn, where you discuss how reading about the history of the ecosystem made you realize that Python, for most people, was replacing some existing scientific computing tool. Before Python, what was the workflow of a researcher or a data scientist? Yeah, so that, that's a good, interesting question, and I, um, to be honest, I can't answer it from a personal standpoint, because I've never used anything but Python in research. But <clears throat> I went over this a little bit in my uh, SciPy keynote a couple of years ago, where I, I went through the history of this. And it seems like in the scientific world where, where I am, the pre-Python workflow was kind of a hodgepodge of MATLAB, uh, GNU plot, uh, maybe running some Fortran scripts to, to do kind of intensive computing on things. And um, it was really like you, you needed to have a, f a familiarity with a half a dozen different tools to do different parts of the workflow. And my, uh, my impression is where, where Python came into that is it came in um, as kind of a glue language more than anything. Um, you know, Guido, uh, the creator of Python, has talked about how Python was initially invented as, uh, as a teaching language, but also as kind of a replacement for the bash shell, because what, what scientists and, and people were doing was writing these bash scripts that would string together all these different tools and different languages and different, different platforms and moving data around that way. And Python has kind of uh, started out as providing that glue. And if you look at, um, if you look at the early scientific Python packages, the NumPy and SciPy. You know, NumPy came from uh, NumArray and Num, and um, there's all these different packages that start with Num that were <laughs> precursors to NumPy. But basically, the idea there is that the SciPy started out as a set of wrappers of Fortran libraries that were well known at the time um, in Netlib. You know, things like LawPack and Blast for linear algebra, things. like FFT pack for signal analysis, uh, quad pack for integration. And if you look at the, the core of SciPy, that's what it is. It's just a, a set of Python wrappers for these Fortran libraries. And um, then, you know, you build on top of that, like uh, Matplotlib, which is sort of like a, a MATLAB replacement that works well with SciPy. And the ecosystem just progressed, and, and pretty soon Python was not only uh, gluing together these old tools, these Fortran libraries and these MATLAB APIs, 
but also starting to develop its own new set of tools. And, and you know, along the way, you saw things like you see things like the Scikits being developed, Scikit Learn, Scikit Image, some of these other projects, and um, and also uh, stuff like Pandas. You know, Pandas is this entirely new thing that was that was built in Python, not wrapping any existing library, but it sort of showed that Python had come into as its, its own as a platform for, uh, for data-intensive computing. Right. No, that, that makes, seems to make a lot of sense. Because, um, you know, I think historically people kind of have always talked about Python being slow and, and, and whatever, but uh, it seems like being, like you have these like core set of low-level um, libraries and languages that have kind of been implemented and seems like they're battle-tested pretty well, and it seems like Python's like a great way on top where people can come in and be very productive and know that the underlying structure is, is really strong. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and that's the key when people talk about Python being slow. And um, it's, for scientists or, or data crunchers, that, that doesn't really matter because the heavy lifting is all being done by these, um, these uh, wrapped libraries and these, these compiled things. Python is this glue, this convenient glue on top. Right. And that makes sense. Um, so you also mentioned that same post that you're bullish on Python uh, also because of the Julia language. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Julia language and, and why you think um, that it's really interesting and, and impressive? Yeah, so Julia is really cool because it, it basically um, tries to create, like if, if you wanted to create a, a scientific or a numerical computing language from the ground up knowing what we know today, it tries to tries to do that. And I... Um, I really, really like the Julia project because the, the thing it does is it unifies this glue layer and this computing layer. Um, so you, you can think about it like the, the Python library, uh, the, the user-facing API is Python, but everything under the hood is, is implemented in C, even in core Python. You know, C Python is implemented in, in uh, C. Um, now there are projects like PyPy that try to, try to change this and stuff. But the, the nice thing about Julia is that um, the core numeric, fast numeric operations are actually implemented in Julia. Um, so there's not this um, there's not this barrier between the user facing code and the implementation code. Um, and they've done some really nice things. Like they they have a, a really nicely developed type system that um, that works very well for. Uh, for particularly like um, high performance numerical computing groups. and they have this multiple dispatch model that means that you can um, you can basically optimize implementations of functions based on what the inputs are. So, best example of this is let's say you want to do a, you know, a, a matrix <clears throat> solve a, a system of equations with a matrix. That depending on the type of matrix, you can dispatch to uh, a different underlying implementation. So if you have a a dense matrix versus a sparse matrix versus a diagonal matrix, you can specialize those implementations. And that multiple dispatch is, I think, a really, really powerful abstraction for this type of computing. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about um, Julia in general as a scientific computing platform. So, uh, so it seems like Julia is very interesting by itself. Um, so what makes, what makes Julia compelling for Python? It seems like it's almost trying to replace it in many ways. Yeah, it's trying to replace it in many ways, but the, one of the interesting things is that they, you know, Python's strength right now is the diversity of uh, tools and the ecosystem. You know, whatever whatever field you're in, if you want to do something in Python, someone has probably already written the package for you, and it's probably out there. 
Um, so Julia doesn't have that. So they need to they need to bootstrap that somehow. And the way that they're bootstrapping that is by creating um, creating really seamless ways of interacting with Python from Julia. So it's almost like becoming this 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 super language where you know you have Julia and Python. And you can think about it as like Julia is wrapping the old Python libraries the same way that Python wraps the old Fortran. So it becomes all part of one, you know, massive ecosystem. <coughs> so I don't think I don't think Python's going to be going away anytime soon, even if even if people start moving to implementing more stuff in Julia. That being said, I um, I do enjoy writing Python a lot more than writing Julia. There's some there's some pieces to it that just aren't don't feel as uh, as intuitive to me. But you know that, that also could be just uh, you know, familiarity. So it seems like the way forward uh, for both Python and Julia is kind of for the people in the Python community to continue building really great packages like Pandas and Scikit-Learn and Maplotlib, and for Julia to uh, call those libraries and implement them well, and or just call them rather, and then implement some of the functionality that Python was not didn't have great libraries for um, in native Julia. Yeah, I think so, and and I think moving forward as Julia as Julia comes more into maturity, I think that people will be end up working on the other way too, like the ability to call Julia packages from Python. The nice thing is the Julia core array model basically maps one to one onto the NumPy core array model. So um, sharing sharing data, um, sh- sharing memory between a Julia process and a Python process is uh, is uh, pretty straightforward. Um, but overall, I think it, I think it shows kind of the, the overall trend in scientific computing, I think, is for having less uh, this tool versus that tool and more having multiple tools work together. And you see this in the, in the IPython project's rebranding as Jupyter, which is this amalgamation of Julia, Python, and R. Um, and the, so the, the vision there is that the Jupyter Notebook would be a place where you're not just typing coding in Python or just type coding in Julia or just R, but a, an environment where you can have all of those interact. That makes sense. Um, so how, how would you imagine that workflow being, um, where you're using Julia for some things, Python for some things, and R for others? It seems like almost like um, the one great thing about Python was kind of was acting as that great glue layer, and you kind of mostly just worked there. So, do you like does this feel like a step backwards, or is just kind of like an intermediate phase? Yeah, I think I think it's kind of an intermediate phase. I mean, if you on the user end, maybe things might not change, but like if, when I'm implementing implementing libraries in Python, I often am stepping into C to pieces of those and wrapping it in Python. So. So, like the the library developers are already doing a lot of language hopping um, as it is. So, you know, if we're if we start implementing the core of some Python li- libraries in Julia or um, that sort of thing, then I, I don't think it'll change the, the status quo much for Python. But um, it gives it gives and ends up giving end users more options. That makes sense. Um... Cool. Let's actually switch gears a little bit and focus uh, on the data visualization. So, what uh, as part of the regular data scientists or researchers workflow, where, where exactly does data data visualization fit in? So, I see I see two distinct areas of data visualization. One is uh, kind of your exploratory data analysis. Your you know just getting a rough idea of what your data looks like, um, and in that case, you need 
you need kind of intuitive, uh, declarative, fast tools that sort of make make the hard choices for you in, in, in displaying the visualization. And then the other side of it is for, especially for uh, scientists, is the, the publication visualizations. And at that point, you need a lot more fine control over what's going on in your plot. And so these, <clears throat> these two distinct areas are kind of, uh, you know, it's hard, it's hard to have one tool fit them both. So Matplotlib, for example, is um, very powerful. You, you know, you can, you can make virtually any visualization you want in it. But it's not particularly good for data exploration because you have to do a lot of things manually. So the, the manual control that gives you the power to create any figure is what blocks you from um, doing kind of effective iterative data exploration in that problem. Then you have, uh, so, so the, those are kind of the two, uh, the two areas of visualization that I see. And um, we have something to follow up with on that. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because I've actually worked a lot with Matplotlib. And while, I mean, I definitely agree that while it's, you can basically make any plot you want, um, it's also feels really complex for even some of the basic things. Um, it's also hard to make plots look really nice, uh, sometimes. Um, so what do you, what do you think that is? Is there something about, um, kind of Matplotlib and the architecture of it, which, is kind of um, is it like a leftover from the MATLAB days? Is it like the need to be able to create absolutely any visualization from scratch? Like, what? Why do you think it is uh, as complex as it is? I think it's be it's because it's a procedural uh, plotting language, and, and you know, it grew out of MATLAB and out of GNU Plot and some of those tools that were um, around in the eighties and nineties, and, 90s. and um, so. It, when I say it's procedural, I mean that you're kind of like you're you're telling the computer exactly what you want to happen. You know, you say I want to plot these points, and then I want this text on the x-axis and this text on the y-axis. I want these these limits on on x and these limits on y. And so, by the time you've created a labeled scatter plot, you've done a few dozen lines of code, right? Um, so the where visualization has, has moved uh, in, the, in the last decade or two, I think, is more towards a, um, a declarative approach, where you think about um, you're not telling you're not telling the computer exactly how to do something. You're telling the computer what you want the result to be. And uh, a good example of this is the ggplot and ggplot2 and, and R. This um, idea of plotting based on a grammar of graphics, where you you have a a grammar talking about certain operations or, or, or visual structures that you want to happen, and basically the computer figures out how to put your data into that. And the, the nice thing about that is that you can, you know, you can iterate and you can explore data really quickly. And um, ggplot has a nice feature on top of that that the, the people who built the library in R have put a lot of thought into um, into making the plots beautiful and um you know using using good style defaults and matplotlib for it's still sort of mired in, in matlab circa 1999 um, although i should say the, the matplotlib 2.0 release is coming out soon and it has the style defaults completely revamped and it's uh, it's getting a little bit better so why do you think uh, there hasn't been like a a really popular um, declarative uh, library in Python? Because um, it seems like R had one that was pretty compelling, that was pretty popular. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think part of it is just the, the inertia of Matplotlib being the, the solution for 10 years. You know, once you have, once you have something that everyone knows how to, how to use and all the, all the code is there and uh, it's, it's hard to change tools. Um, now, there have been, there's been some interesting developments with Matplotlib with um, kind of APIs being built around it. You have the, probably the most impo- uh, popular one is the Seaborn library, which is basically a, a Python library that, that does, um, does some of the, it's not totally declarative, but it, it allows you to create nice plots and it builds in some better style choices and um, makes a lot of those hard decisions in the background for you, like setting access limits and, and access labels and things like that. Uh, there's another one. Yhat has this ggplot interface to Matplotlib that's um, that's pretty interesting too. It sort of takes it takes a lot of the things that people like about R's ggplot and um, implements them in Python with a, with a Matplotlib backend. So stuff is coming along, and and I think it's uh, I think we're getting there. But it's just you know it's it's the inertia of having uh, a decade worth of Matplotlib code and Matplotlib knowledge in everyone's head. So it seems like, uh, so yeah, I've used Seaborn myself, and um, I'm, I'm generally pretty happy uh, with how it's implemented and, and the, even the interface for it. Um, I haven't used ggplot, but it seems like both of these libraries um, could possibly kind of fill the exploratory uh, data visualization um, aspect of the workflow. Um, do, you, do you think there's, uh, do, like, what do you think is missing and uh, in those libraries, and do you also see a challenge um, when you're kind of spending a lot of your time exploring data, and then um, when you actually want to kind of create something that's publication or presentation ready, um, don't you think there's kind of some inertia with kind of recoding the whole thing in Matplotlib or another kind of more procedural uh, language? Yeah, absolutely. So I I really think the way forward is to have um, <clears throat> this is something like what Seaborn is doing. You can you can do these quick, almost declarative uh, visual uh, explorations of data, but then what comes out is a figure object, and that figure is a Matplotlib figure. So then if you want to start tweaking fonts and tweaking axis sizes and things like that, you can take the output of Seaborn and start using all the powerful uh, tools that Matplotlib has to, to make it look how you want. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really nice model. Um, but then you you know you run into problems with that like for example uh, Matplotlib is it's really nice publishing PNGs or PDFs but if you want anything interactive or um, or online it doesn't really have an, an output for that um, so I think that in in the end I guess overall what I'd like to see is some really clean API for data exploration that outputs some sort of um, some sort of unit or, or figure or object that can then be tweaked in a uh, lower level language to produce the kind of publication quality plots we want. And it would be a bonus if it can also um, output in uh, like something that's interactive for the web. No, that, ma- that makes sense. And uh, that's actually a great uh, transition point because um, I'm curious, you know, what, how Matplotlib um, is with working with, uh, when creating and working with, interactive visualization, it seems like there's some functionality and it seems like along with Jupyter Notebook, you, go, you can also kind of create these widgets. Um, that's something I've definitely done in the past, but it also seems limited in many ways. Um, what do you think are the, are the challenges um, with creating kind of interactive visualizations in Matplotlib? 
Yeah, so MapLab, the, the interactions that are built in with MapLab are um, kind of uh, OS system specific things. So, you know, like you have your, if you're on a Mac, you have your OS X uh, uh, Windows Manager and Graphics Manager. And MapLab knows how to, um, how to tie into that and let you do things like click and drag and um, do interactive graphics. But, you know, it, it, it's operating system specific and uh, behaviors change a little bit between there and Windows or Linux or what, whatever graphics backend you decide to use. Um, so MapLab has done a, done a phenomenal job trying to abstract away all that system stuff and let you have a single interface to that. But the end, in the end, you're still dependent on a... Um, you know, a CPU graphics manager, uh, an operating system graphics manager. And what people, what a lot of people are wanting to do these days is, you know, public, take your data and publish it on a web page and, you know, interact via JavaScript or via, via those sorts of things. So um, this, that was not really a thing when Matplotlib was first created, you know, circa 2001, 2002. People weren't, you know, there, there was no D3 and there was, you know, JavaScript was uh, harder to work with back then than it is now. Um, but uh, so so there's been some there's been a little bit of progress on that. I, a couple of years ago, I uh, worked on I created this MPL D3 package. Um, that basically what the idea of that is that you know the Matplotlib spits out a figure that has all the information about the plot in it, including what the axes are, what the data is, uh, you know what. You know, the mappings between various things. So, I, uh, what MPLD3 does is it um, it crawls the the Matplotlib figure, pulls out all the relevant data, and then creates uh, um, basically a, an HTML and JavaScript view of the figure. Uh, and it, it works pretty well for about ninety percent of what Matplotlib does, but that last ten percent is the really hard thing to do well. Um, so, I think that was a that's a that was an interesting step in the right direction, but I don't think MPLD3 is really the the long term solution because it's you know it started out as like a started out as a hack and then turned into a, a really gigantic hack. So yeah, I mean that that's interesting. I mean, so how does that workflow look like? Is it you're kind of exporting? It's creating uh, and exporting HTML and JavaScript. So then do you go and edit that JavaScript separately uh, as kind of a separate workflow, or is it? Do you, is there some way to express uh, in Python code itself um, what kind of JavaScript objects you want? Yeah, there's a so the way it actually works is it um, it extracts all the data from the figure and all the relationships and then spits out this uh, this JSON structure that um, that encodes all of that and then um, MPLD3 has a JavaScript library that knows how to read that JSON structure and, and display it. So the the problem with it is, is it's really really hard to do anything beyond the bare minimum just because, because of the way that that I I constructed it. Um, you know I I I think it could have been done in a, in a lot better way, but you know, at the time I was just trying to get something working. But there is it does MPLD three does offer some uh, Python side plugins where you can you can write a couple lines of job, of appropriate JavaScript code. And then um, add different types of interactivity to the plot. It's not super well documented, and um, to be honest, I don't think it ever will be. I'm, I'm not planning on putting much work and more work into MPLD3 in the future. But um, I think it was an interesting experiment. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, so, what uh, have you worked much with the Boca library? It seems like that's 
a project by Continuum, and they're also trying to kind of bridge the Python and JavaScript um, uh, cell barrier, if you will. Yeah, Bokeh is awesome. Um, it's I think they they really landed on the right model, which is a you know a, they have a they have a JSON specification for their graphic, and then they have a JavaScript library that renders and views that, and they have ways of um, talking about interactivity and things like this. Um, not, I'm not totally fond of the, uh, the Python side API for Bokeh, but again, it might just be because I'm not super familiar with it. Um, but yeah, they're, they're doing a lot of good things. And another, another library that's doing similar things is Plotly. Um, and so they, they also have this Python API that outputs a JSON structure and then a JavaScript library that visualizes it. And they have um, you know, ways, ways to put interactions in there and to talk about various things. So... Plot, yeah, Plotly's an interesting one too. Um, so, what what do you think are like the limitations of this approach? Kind of like, it seems like it's it's somewhat uh, declarative. You're writing Python code, and it's creating. Um, hopefully, you're kind of just express it uh, in the way you want the plot to look like. And because um, you know it's in Python, and you're not really kind of writing the JavaScript code. But how does uh, what are the what do you think are the limitations of it? Like, do you think uh, you can actually create really rich interactive visualizations, or is it more about creating taking a Python, a plot you create in Python, and then converting a JavaScript, and then having a general set of kind of interactivity, zooming and panning um, that anyone can uh, use. You mean mean for MPLD3 or for these? Uh, For for Plotly and for um, Boca. So one of the big limitations of Boca is that um, they, they, uh, you can't can't output in um, vector graphic format. So like if, so, for example, I can't use Bokeh for my um, scientific visualizations because um, the journals that I publish to might not um, might not take PNG figures. They want they want uh, EPS or PDF. Um, so yeah, so but that's one problem with Bokeh, and that's just because it's it's really hard to create a system that can do both uh, interactive online visualization and also can output in all these formats. This is one thing I should have mentioned earlier about Matplotlib. One huge strength of Matplotlib is that they have backends for everything and they're bulletproof and they work well. So if you want to output PNG or JPEG or PDF or EPS or, um, you know, any, any of those formats, they do SVG too, correct? Yeah, and SVG. There's so there, there's an output format for virtually everything in Matplotlib, and they've been used for ten years, so they're um, right. really well tested. Makes sense. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, a project you're working on right now called Altair, uh, which seems like you want to kind of take over this declarative visualization and uh, exploratory side of data visualization. Um, so talk a little bit about Altair and um, what what it's exciting about it for you. Okay, so to talk about Altair, I want to step back a little bit because um, a, lot of, a lot of people out here have heard of D3 now, right? Because D3 is this, um, it basically drives interactive web visualization. It's uh, anytime you go to the New York Times and they have some interactive journalistic article, um, it's D3 that's driving that. And that's partly because uh, the, the graphics, I guess graphics editor there is the guy who created D3. Mike right, Post. Mike Postdoc, right, yeah. But yeah, so D, D3 is great, but if you've ever tried to use D3, it's, um, you know, it, it takes it takes hundreds of lines of code to create a histogram, right? So you're not, you're not going to be using D3 directly unless you're Mike Postdoc or, or one of the power users. 
Um, so the the group that created D3, um, Mike Bossock's uh, PhD advisor is a guy named uh, Jeff Hare. He was at Stanford and is now at UW just down the down the road for me, which is pretty nice. Um, and Jeff and his group uh, created this project called Vega. And what Vega is is it's a it's a declarative grammar of graphics essentially that um, is built kind of on top of D3 and what they did with D3, at where you can you can specify a JSON object structure that, that tells you what your plot will look like, and then there's a JavaScript library that renders it. So this is starting to sound familiar, right? Bokeh, <laughs> MPLD3, and Plotly. Um, but the difference with Vega, the thing I really like about it, is that they've, the, unlike these other libraries, I think, they've, um, they've drawn on years' worth of theory about how graphics are expressed, to, to decide how to express those graphics in Vega. So it turns out to be a really, really nice grammar for specifying graphics. But still, Vega itself is, um, if you want to create that same histogram, instead of writing 200 lines of D3 code, you're now writing um, uh, a JSON structure with 100 entries and very specific keys. That you have. So that, that's not super useful for you know, exploratory data analysis, but it is, it is getting to that declarative side of things. So then once Vega was mature, they said, we need something that's a little lighter than this. So we created Vega Lite, right? So, so if, you're, if you're keeping track, Vega Lite compiles down to Vega, which compiles down to basically HTML and D3 JavaScript type stuff and utilizes your plot. So Vega Lite is, um, doesn't have all the expressivity of, the, of Vega. It makes a lot of the choices, a lot more choices for you. But it allows you now with a data set to create something like a histogram in say, six JSON entries. All right, so that's something that you can start wrapping your mind around as, an, as a user doing exploratory data. So um, where this is, and this is where Altair was born. So Brian Granger and I um, took a look at this, this Vega Lite, and, and you know, it, it looks like a, it, it, it's really nice, and it's very expressive and very powerful, but I don't want to write raw JSON strings, right? I, I want to write Python code, so we, we started to um, brainstorm about how we could, how we might create a Python library that would output this Vega Lite JSON specification. And what 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 we came up with is was Altair, and it's it's gone through a you know a few different iterations. But what it is now is something that I I really like this aspect of it. The the library probably 90, 95% of the library itself is auto generated from the Vega Lite schema. Oh, interesting. So the, the Vegalite schema defines what these JSON structures, uh, what what are valid JSON structures that can be passed into Vegalite and visualized. So what Altair does is we, we created tools that crawl through that schema and create Python objects that mirror each of the categories of objects in that schema. And then, um, so the, the raw way of using Altair is just to basically create these create these JSON dicks by building up Python structures. And the, and the nice thing about the Python objects is if you're, if you're in the Jupyter Notebook environment, you have tab completion, you have you know, help tools, and, and it makes it much easier to remember what exactly you're allowed to do within those objects. And it gives you a syntax error if you're violating the JSON schema. Um, so that, that's nice. You get, you get this immediate feedback. And then on, on top of that, we've created some... Um, some sort of syntactic add-ons that, that maintain this declarative, uh, 
this declarative way of thinking about visualizations, but make it a little more convenient to use than just doing a nested hierarchy of Python objects. Um, and so the result is this Altair API that's um, it's pretty fun to work with. It's still young. We have a lot of work to do on it, but um, I've found it in, in using it to... Um, in playing with it to, to explore data sets, I found it to be really intuitive. And the core idea is that um, if you like, if, if you want, if you have some data set and, and you want, um, what you do is you you map different columns in your data set to visual attributes on the plot. So, for example, you know, we, our, our first example on the web page is this cars data set. So you. You say, I want the x-axis to be miles per gallon, I want the y-axis to be acceleration, and I want the color to be the country of origin. So literally, you just specify the data and those three mappings. Quite and, declarative. Yeah, and the, and the plot is created for you. So that, and you, you don't have to worry about axis limits. You don't have to worry about you know, creating figure bounds and, and color bars and, and legends and you don't have to worry about your legend overlapping some relevant part of the data and you know all the stuff that comes up that so that, that's the declarative aspect of it so then if you if you do run into uh any, any problems uh or if, you know if there's anything you want to customize uh what kind of capability is there for if you do want to kind of more, if you do want more fine grained control over your plots, yeah. So the the Vigalite grammar itself actually has a lot of customization and configuration in it. So if you if you want to if you want to dig in and, and change the look of the, the default output, there's lots of different things you can specify. Different colors, you can specify shapes of points, size of your axis, axis limits. You can filter and transform your data in various ways. Um, so, so Vegalite has a has a degree of customization built into it. But the thing we're we're really excited about eventually is um, thinking about this uh, this Vegalite grammar, this kind of JSON this JSON clump of, of data and metadata as a way of uh, communicating between different plot libraries. And this is sort of a, a little more long term, but. Um, <clears throat> What I'd really like to see happen is I'd like <clears throat> I'd like to see a tool built where Matplotlib can uh, a Python tool that can read in these JSON specifications and output an appropriate Matplotlib figure. Because then what you're thinking about is you could you know you could do your ex exploratory visualization in, in Vega uh, in in Altair and Vega Lite. Um, if you want some interactive plot, you just you know you get that for free. And if you want to tweak the plot and, and do something a little more for visualization or for publication, then you can output to matplotlib, start you know, doing matplotlib's tweaks on it, and you end up with something like that. And there's no reason it should be limited to matplotlib, too, right? Because you could, you could imagine creating a, a bokeh converter or a plotly converter. And actually, the, the authors of those libraries are, are excited about Vega Lite or, or Vega in this context. Um, It'll be a lot of work, but I really see um, not Altair itself, but I see Vega Light and, and Vega as sort of a, a lingua franca of uh, visualization. You know, the same way we were talking about earlier with Julia and Python interacting, and now you're at the point where you don't really have to choose what tool you want. I'd love to see see this Vega and Vega Light as a way of um, of interacting between different different graphics libraries. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that portable kind of JSON. 
structures is especially interesting, and it seems really similar to um, the efforts now uh, to unify the data frames. So, like Apache Arrow, uh, I believe Dask, and I mean, obviously Pandas itself uses NDRA. So, it seems like uh, in in kind of the computing side of data science, if you will, um, that kind of 2D array was the unifying structure that a lot of them ended up uh, sharing and are now hopefully there's kind of some unification of that. Um, so is that, I'm guessing it seems like you, you envisioned something similar for the data visualization tool. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the funny thing about that was the, um, where Altair was born was at this little, uh, this meetup in Berkeley that was... Um, the, the express purpose of the meetup in Berkeley was to start talking about um, cross-platform and cross-language data frames. And um, so there were, there were some people that were working on that. Um, but Brian and I uh, gathered in the back corner and, and, and brought another couple of people, and we started thinking about cross-platform graphics instead. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's all related. There, there's, some, there's some real challenges in sharing data frames between systems because... Um, well, uh, well, numerical data buffers are pretty uniform across languages and platforms. Uh, strings are definitely not uniform across different languages and platforms, and, and data frames really are uh, closely tied to string labels for columns and string data, so it, it can be tough. Although, um, you know, Hadley Wickham and, and Wes McKinney came out with this uh, this. Uh, cross-platform storage format for data frames. Is it Feather? Is that what it's called? Yeah, I think it's Feather, yeah. Um, yeah, so that, that's something that's going kind of in the, in the right direction. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes up, what comes out of those sorts of uh, discussions. So what other, what other parts of a data science workflow do you see this fragmentation of tools do you think could benefit from some kind of unifying either framework or data structure? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, it's it. Beyond kind of the the data array, the data frame, and the visualization specification, it's hard. I don't know if there's if there's much more that would be practical. Um, the, the the Jupyter notebook and the the Jupyter lab project that's going to grow out of it is an interesting one because it I think it it has promised to be sort of a cross language um, uh, development environment and computing environment for data science. Um, I'm really excited about Jupyter Lab. What's coming? This is kind of the the next generation of the Jupyter Notebook. They're um, I think about six months out from um, first release, and I really think that's gonna that's gonna change things for the better in the in the Python world, and then also be useful in in Julia and R and other worlds as well. Yeah, it seems like that's one thing that I think a lot of uh, data scientists have have complained about. I think Jeff Hammerbacker in a Quora post said that one thing he wished. Uh, there was was kind of this R Studio for Python, or just kind of unifying IDE in general. And so, like, what what about what kind of features and uh, tools and Jupyter Lab uh, make that really compelling as an IDE for data science? Uh, the, the the most compelling thing is the extensibility. Um, so they <clears throat> like currently right now you have the the notebook, which is basically a web front end that that has the abstractions to communicate with a kernel. And that kernel can be Python or it can be R or Julia or you know, Scala and things like that. Um, but, so what JupyterLab does is it, um, is it takes that kind of hacked together interface between the web notebook and the backend kernel and uh, makes it more well-defined so that you can start to build different interfaces on top. And so at a, 
kind of tr somewhat trivial but really interesting example is that let's say you have a markdown file on your file system. You can point two different web interfaces at that markdown file that sit right next to it, one another. One of them will render it as a text editable text document, and the other will render it as a rendered markdown. So, you know, you can sit there and type. And this is something that, that can be done in a, in a few lines of code to specify the extension. Um, That's really cool. I this past summer when JupyterLab was demoed and announced. At one of the hack days, someone from the astronomy community uh, wrote a, uh, an, an astronomical image viewer for JupyterLab. And it was like, you know, it was... It, yeah, it took a while to figure out exactly what to do, but in the end, it was a few dozen lines of code to create this um, interactive in image viewer for the typical file format that astronomers use. And so I see that sort of thing being really powerful, especially when you can start plugging all these tools together and um, and and working to them, working with them in one IDE. But yeah, that the. Most users, I think, will use Jupyter Lab as like a terminal, a notebook, and a text editor all in one place that that are all talking to the same Python kernel and interacting. That's that's really uh, that's really quite compelling. Um, interesting. Um, so to kind of start to wrap this up, uh, we you know in this episode we we talked about newer languages like Julia. We talked about Python. We talked about visualization libraries, uh, what else is kind of changing in the world of data science that's really exciting for you um, that you think in the next few years is going to be um, huge game changers? So one thing, one thing recently that's pretty exciting is the, um, the advent of all these uh, open deep learning libraries, you know, things like, like TensorFlow and Keras and, um, and Fiano sort of modifying itself to, to get into that deep learning or neural net space. Um, uh, I think that's that's going to be really huge, and I'm seeing uh, seeing more and more on on the academic side. I'm seeing more and more people getting into publishing their code, um, being out in the open, and that that's going to be huge um, if we can continue on that track. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely. I mean, like, I think Vega is a clear example of this, right? Like that seems like something that came out of academia, but is now kind of you know being used a lot in industry, especially for these open source libraries. Um, is that something you want to um, encourage a lot more of, like collaboration between academia and the data science industry more generally? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, um, I don't know necessarily uh, academia and industry in particular, but I think um, I think what I want to encourage, I would say, I want academia to to uh, release the tools that it's creating for research. And, you know, if that ends up being something that people in industry want to use, then that's great. Um, if it ends up being a tool that other academics use to push knowledge in their own field, then that's great as well. So, you know, I'm, um, I'm at the eScience Institute at University of Washington. Um, and this is kind of a, we're in the middle of a five-year data science initiative where we're thinking about how, uh, what, what does data science on an academic campus look like? And one of the things we've, we've gelled around is this idea of open access, of reproducibility, of publishing code, of um, you know, doing research on GitHub or Bitbucket or those other, other tools that make, um, make the research available out there. And I'm pretty optimistic about that because it seems to be uh, a good head of steam developing behind these ideas. Interesting. Well, thanks again uh, for coming on the show, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks. Wow.